Welcome to Cage Club, Episode 7, Birdie, the third Cage movie from 1984. I'm Joey Lewandowski, with me as always is Mike Manzi, and with me today, for the first time, a special guest, Christian Larson. Hey everybody. Christian Larson feels like a lifelong friend, I've really only known him for about eight years. He loves movies as much as Mike and I do, he loves weird movies as much as Mike and I do, and Birdie is definitely a weird movie. Although, I have to say, like, after I was done watching it, like, I, I went through phases watching this movie. At first, I was like, this is so weird. And then after a while, there was so much about it that was endearing that by the end, when, like, Nicolas Cage is cradling Birdie in his arms, I'm like... I really can't mockingly call this a crazy Nicolas Cage movie. It actually made me... It was It was very endearing. It was very sweet. It's uh, not your average Vietnam film, I'll give you that no. much. Uh, no. Never really seen a non-film dealing with, you know, the after effects of the, the boys coming home and, you know, having gone insane. That was yeah. a nice That was a nice touch. Yeah, and, and the one thing about uh, the war parts is that the war parts don't fuck around. Like, Usually, you watch a Vietnam movie or whatever, and like someone blows up, and that's it. But this is one of those movies where the people had gaping wounds, and they were screaming, and like bodies strewn around. Like they really wanted to drive it home. Obviously, that like this is what these people saw that made them who they are. You sort of spend the whole movie waiting for them to get to Vietnam, and they finally do. And they only show Vietnam for about three minutes or so. Yeah. But the entire time is horrific. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. nothing nothing even normal goes on over there. Like, they cut over there, and Birdie's on the ground screaming. There's explosions going off. Cage is wounded by, sh- by fire and by just this big explosion. Mm-hmm. He gets helicoptered out, and he's in pain the entire time. It's... The, it's traumatic. It's they you only they linger on the horror, you know. When when they actually show them in the shit, it's uh, it's from their traumatic experience that you know yeah. shipped them back home ultimately and got them back together. Really, only see it at that breakthrough moment uh, toward the end, but super yeah. powerful for waiting to show actual battle. I thought the one thing before we start talking about the movie, I think Mike, you and I have the same version of the DVD. I'm not sure Larson how you watched it, but it would be almost impossible to release a DVD that's more bare bones <laughs> than this DVD. <laughs> yeah, it just started without even going to the menu. I was like, did it have a menu? I wasn't even sure. Oh, my mine went to a menu where the only thing you could do was click play feature. That was it. <laughs> this was my first and probably only YouTube movie rental. Ooh, wow. Because I couldn't really figure out any other legit way to get it. It was surprising to me how obscure this movie is. It it won a, a bunch of awards at film festivals, from what I've read. And the performances are really good. It deals with like serious subject matter. It's like an art house Oscar bait movie. And... No one's ever heard of it. I'd have to mention the director real quick, just because we're talking about how sort of strange this film is. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Alan Parker's work. No. Um, but I mostly knew him from Midnight Express. 
that was sort of like his breakthrough film, but he shot Fame, and he shot this movie after shooting Pink Floyd's The Wall and before shooting Angel Heart. Yeah. So okay. <laughs> it's sort yeah. of in his experimental zone of, uh, of work. It's based on a book from an author I've never heard of who wrote books that I've never heard of. So <laughs> The other films that the director, what's, what's his name again? Alan Parker. Yeah, yeah, he's done he's done a lot of stuff and a lot of stuff I've never seen and are those movies that I feel like I should have seen like Angel Heart. Yeah, uh, was, Mississippi Burning was like his other. Yeah, uh, Midnight uh, Midnight Express, all very like notoriously dark, kind of twisted movies. Midnight Express is is the one where the the famous scene with the hostage who his wife presses her breasts against the window while he masturbates and he's crying. <laughs> it's parodied in the cable guy. <laughs> Classic cinema. I guess we could we should start just talking about the movie. Okay. And the movie starts out and Cage is with a group of kids who just seem like his younger brother's friends. Like it doesn't look like he has any friends his own age. Well, we start well, it, it, at the it, war hospital, and they're sort of wheeling him out, and okay, yeah. like, he looks like the mummy. He's got, like, a face wrapped in bandage. He calls he himself has, the Invisible Man. He has an awkward moment with a little girl on the train. That's actually, when I was watching that scene, I was like, this is some good cage right here, because you can see in his face when the girl's staring at him, like, he's realizing now that everyone's going to look at him like a monster for the rest of his life. And you can really see that in his performance, even though half his face is wrapped in bandages. So point cage. He says that he looks like the Invisible Man. He also sort of looks a little bit like the Phantom of the Opera. I was thinking Darjeeling Limited as well, Owen Wilson a bit. (laughs) He spends the whole movie, at least in the present, because Birdie, unlike any of the other movies that we've seen so far in Cage Club, Birdie plays with timelines in a way that nothing else we've seen has. Like, the movie's told both in the present and in flashbacks of varying, sort of, you know, over the past few years. Everything that's in the present, Cage has half of his face wrapped from a horrific explosion while he was over in Vietnam. And his conversations with Birdie in the hospital are sort of a framing device for the story of their adolescence yeah i got the sense that we were seeing the stuff they were t- he was talking to birdie about like we yeah were and there's there's life. even a there's even a point where he's like well the doc says i should come and tell you stories about stuff <laughs> it never feels forced or like hacky i don't think i think he's just sort of telling the story like i never got the sense of like all right now what are we gonna learn next yeah. i just sort of i was there along for the ride yeah Although I, I, I wrote the word forced, ironically, uh, next in my notes, because Cage and Birdie's French, I keep calling him Cage, I know he had, he had a name in the Oh movie. yeah, no, we go back and forth between character names and Cage, it's totally fine. <laughs> but he, uh, Birdie is the neighborhood weirdo, he's obsessed with birds, and all of a sudden through a mistaken stolen knife scenario, they bond, and all of a sudden become the best of friends, which I find weird... Because he's set up to be the cool, popular, cocky dude, and Birdie's just like a crazy weirdo. It seems right away that, you know, Birdie is the weird kid. Actually, before we get there, um, there is a cage connection that before he, like, as before he's called away to go talk to the weird kid, he's under the bleachers feeling up a girl. Yes. And in Racing with the Moon, 
as Mike remembers, he copped a feel on, that, on uh, Crispin Glover's girlfriend as he was cleaning the blood off her shirt. And later in the movie, he's copying a feel. Like, Cage, <laughs> through seven movies, has grabbed three girls' boobs. <laughs> and it's only 1984. That's a really good success ratio. And most of it's in the first reel. You know, he's always making sure he got that first reel grab. It's just some random girl that I don't think we see again. Cage has, like, several girls that he's with in this movie. He's a heartthrob. You know, they're selling him like uh, like he gets all the girls. Which makes it even less realistic that his best friend would be this guy who thinks he's a bird. But it kind of plays into the... You know, he loses that sex appeal when he loses half his face, so that's probably being internalized. I don't know. I just saw, like, a parallel between him before Nam and him after Nam, and I was like, God, he was like a ladies' man, and that's one of the things, like, he's not going to be anymore. It was adapted from a book, and a lot of times when you adapt books into films, two people become the best of friends within a a few scenes, or two people fall in love in a montage, because they can't really get into the subtleties of it in a film. Birdie is like this, he's he's set up as this weirdo. Once Cage starts talking to him, he just comes across as totally normal. He just likes birds, and that's weird to everybody in town. I also kind of feel like there's, like, okay, when he goes to get the knife from Birdie, like, Birdie, like, is real squirrely and, like, can maneuver out of all of Nick Cage's, like, wrestling holds. And Nick Cage yep. is kind of like, hey, kid, you, like, you wrestle? I wrestle. Like, he's into, he's like, you should wrestle. So there's, like, something about him. And then uh, his brother's like, hey, I'd pay for a pigeon. I want a pigeon, you know? Like, <laughs> pigeons are in. It's yeah. the 50s. And yeah, he's like, yeah. hey, you... I'll help you catch some pigeons. And I think That's it's a- like they go to that overpass and he sees that like Birdie is like fearless and he kind of like admires him, I think, a little bit where he's like, I'm tough and all, but like Birdie's crazy. <laughs> I mean, that's the real reason that they're friends is because Cage's younger brother says that there's basically there could be money in training homing pigeons. And it seems like that's the only excuse that Cage needs to become friends with this kid that nobody knows anything about and nobody really likes. Yeah, like I said, it feels rushed and forced, even though it it turns out to be a very, I'm going to keep using the word endearing to describe it, but it, it ends up turning into a very endearing relationship. Like, very shortly after they decide to start catching pigeons, they're, they're making making and wearing pigeon suits and uh, Birdie <laughs> leaps off the roof, and and Cage is there like cradling his head in his in his arms in a yeah. very dramatic scene. And, We're shadowing too a shot towards the end. Within about five minutes of becoming friends, they're both dressed up as pigeons, <laughs> and they look like pigeons if Wilfred was a pigeon. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they're like huge, giant, mutant-looking pigeons, yeah. and they're just going around trying to pick up birds so that they can train these birds. Birdie gets a little too daring and almost falls off the top of a roof. Apparently, like, Nick Cage doesn't have the strength to pull Birdie up onto the roof? Yeah, Birdie was sort of... Uh, I had the feeling that he wanted, he was testing his limits. Like, he actually wanted to see, you know, you know how far am I from, from actually flying here? You know, do I need to go along and make those fake wings or, or meditate until I can leave my own body? So I think he was just sort of, you know, testing the waters. Like, I, I mean, we'll find out that Birdie's out of his mind, like, later on, I think, legitimately, you know? Uh, yeah. So this is just one of those, you know, it could be he's a crazy teen moment, but I took it as, like, he's, he's already sort of taking this too far. Birdie's hanging off the roof, 
And when it becomes clear that Cage can't pull him up or Birdie doesn't want to pull him up, he says, it's okay, I'm just going to fly over to that dirt pile. And he jumps off what's got to be like a 40-foot or 30-foot tall building and just lands in a way that could have killed him, paralyzed him, but doesn't seem to really impact him too much. It just sort of invigorates him that he thinks he can fly in the future. Actually, doesn't his mom, like, destroy their uh, aviate, uh, their chicken coop or whatever, they, their their pigeon coop that they created, oh, like, they, their treehouse, yeah. right? It, like, puts has, an end to the pigeon racket. She has a bonfire and burns all the cages. He's like, ah, oh, they'll be back, and Cage is like, no, like, she poisoned the ground. Like, they're not coming back. You gotta face up to it, Brody. Where are the pigeon business? They ain't coming back. Sure they'll come back. They were home. For Christ's sake, what kind of a home is it when your witch of a mom chops up her firewood and chases the birds away with her fucking broom? It's home to them, Al. They always come back. It's not the lumber and the nails, it's the place. Listen, Bertie, I gotta tell you something. Before I do, you have to promise not to go ape shit on me. What? Do you promise? What? Well, you're right. Those birds kept coming back. So first your mom puts down poison and knocks off half of them. But some of those blue bars get smart too and still keep coming back. So she calls Mr. Solari from the market. Mr. Solari? The poultry guy? Yeah, the butcher. That guy dressed his mother as a chicken if he thought he could get 69 cents a pound. Anyway, he must have taken them all because they ain't been back since. No, you don't get it, Al. Those blue bars saw Solari hanging around. That's why they didn't come back. They'll never come back now. You're wrong, Bertie. Solari bagged them. They're dead. Plucked and fucked. You don't understand birds, Al. Listen, I got an idea for something else we can go partners on. You know that old Ford at the junkyard? Yeah, okay. Well, it's a good thing those blue bars recognize Solari, huh? Pigeons ain't stupid, Al! Bertie's just like, uh, he's in denial, man, you know? <laughs> like, it's, and what I like, too, is, like, uh, it's, it's subtle, right? Like, they, they play it as if he's just, like, a teenager, right? Like, shrugging it off, but, like, we'll know later that this is like a dark downward spiral he's he's like starting yeah but cage does break it to him sort of nicely he says we're out of the pigeon business <laughs> the one thing i took personal offense to is that birdie tells cage and cage's name which they don't really say alfonso. until it's alfonso al colombato yeah italian italian bloke the italian thing is 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 a big part of his character i feel like his anger right the explosive italian anger yeah, and the dad is, like, stereotypical blue-collar Italian dad. Matthew Modine's character, Bertie, says to Cage... Nobody wants to be in a cage. Which I feel like is a slap in the face to Nicolas Cage's last name. <laughs> it's a slap in the face to Cage Club as a concept. <laughs> it's like, back off, Matthew Modine. Some of us want to be caged in. Yeah, go put well, some I, pants on. <laughs> I could tell from the very beginning from the artistic shots of birds flying that birds were going to be a metaphor, that there was going to be a theme of freedom and, and whatnot. Normally in a movie like this, you would expect Birdie's family to be very awful or like keep him locked in the basement or anything. But they actually turn out to be not so bad, except for the fact that his mom steals all the neighborhood baseballs. The real bad parent is Cage's dad, who I wrote down in my notes, is a real piece of work. Um, <laughs> That's probably what they would have referred to him like in, in during the time of this film. After Birdie's mom kills all the birds and chases the rest away, Cage says to Matthew Modine, hey, we just did your thing for a while. 
let's do my thing. Let's mm-hmm. get a car and try yeah. to get some girls. I love the scene where they buy the car and they're haggling with the junkyard owner because I love that whole scene because, as you guys know, it's it's completely wordless. All you hear of sounds the ambient sounds of the junkyard, and you see them sort of mime this argument with the junkyard owner. Uh, Birdie leaves the office and takes off his shoe and takes like. $20 bill out of his shoe and walks back in and and it's all it's all very cool. I like that. But I feel like the amount of money they spend on this car, they they hand over like the thickest wad of bills that I've ever seen for a car that doesn't run and that looks like it's rusted over and just a piece of junk. And they end up fixing it up really well too, like <laughs> reviving that thing from the dead in movie time it was like four shots and like the yeah. car was getting progressively more awesome. The convertible yeah. mechanism works. There's two really good scenes, two really good sort of cage dialogue moments. They they're fixing up the car and then Cage's dad comes home and it's the first time we meet him. And they just have this like real passive aggressive back and forth that, like, they don't like each other. He's not happy with what Cage is doing, I guess, with his life. You know, you would think that a dad would be proud of his son for, you know, buying a car and taking the time to fix it up. But his dad is just basically not for the idea at all. Fucking garbage, man. Yeah, and they're not even uh, legal to drive yet, right? Is that the whole, like, cap to yeah, the they, scene? Was like, the dad do. was like, uh, I, gotta, I gotta register that. I gotta sell it. I gotta do this. The one thing about that scene is that I, at least, didn't even know that he was Cage's dad. He gets out of his truck, and he's like, that thing's a piece of shit. And I'm like, who's this guy all this <laughs> Just and some it, real opinionated neighbor. Yeah. But then they fix the car up, like Mike was saying, within about four scenes. And they hop in the car, and they turn it on, and they put down the convertible roof. And then they're just, like, pretending they're driving. <laughs> and they're not moving and it just it's like cute and then also like super weird and I can't, I, can't, I can't tell if I love it or just, like, feel sorry for them in this moment. It's weird, it's cute, I don't know if I should love it or pity them. So after they repair the car, we return to the place, Mike, yes. that, that yeah. Cage is most comfortable in all of his movies. They go back to the beach. <laughs> he even says, you know, where are we going to go? And Cage says, where else? <laughs> where else? The ocean. So this is the at least third time Rusty James goes to the beach in Rumblefish, but this is the fourth time in like seven movies that the beach is the big place to go, like the spot. Cage is king of the beach. It's where he's most comfortable. He goes there with Matthew Modine because apparently they live in Philly, but Birdie's never seen the ocean. I buy that. Does I think you know. <laughs> He just sits on his on his porch and looks at birds all day. Why wouldn't he have not gone to the ocean? And they go to the beach. It's it's so <laughs> weird that like Birdie's basically like, "Hey, I'm gonna hold my breath. Count Mississippi's for me." Yeah, I wasn't sure where why he was so into the breath holding. Like I thought he wanted to be a bird. Like I wasn't quite. I didn't know he wanted to be a fish. Also at this point, but <laughs> we're mixing here. I don't know. Well, maybe maybe he wants to be a duck. 
No. I... Ooh, <laughs> I like that. Because then the two of them go just sort of on the boardwalky area, and they pick up two girls, and then they go to that guy sort of in the, you know, in the, in the freak show tent who is basically the human fish. And again, it seems like Birdie really wants to be a fish instead of a bird. Yeah. We all go through phases. One of his phases was wanting to be a fish, you know? And it, last, and it lasted about three minutes. Yeah. Well, I think the, the fish and the bird share a common enemy, that of the cat. So perhaps okay. he was just trying to oh, relate the, uh, a little bit. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> my favorite, I think my favorite shot in the entire movie is they're on the date, and they get on a roller coaster, and Cage is in the front car with his arm around two girls, and Birdie's just in the back, just flapping his wings. <laughs> and Nick Cage basically, or he just says, hey, Birdie, don't do anything stupid. And Birdie's like, okay. <laughs> and that's, they just ride the roller coaster. Yeah, the way that Birdie was sitting in that roller coaster did not look safe. Like, he was half out of his seat, he's flapping his arms around. I'm surprised he made it. Did you notice toward the end of that shot when Nick Cage sort of whispers in the ear of his date and she just gives him one of the dirtiest looks I've ever seen committed no, to cellular? No, I didn't see that. Oh, man, all right. It's, it's, worth, it's worth a rewatch. But whatever he said to her either was the right thing or not the complete wrong thing because the next scene, he's having sex on the beach under the boardwalk. Dude, under and the bleachers a- and the boardwalk in the same yeah. movie, this guy is a legend. When you said one of your favorite shots, I thought you were going to say the shot where Nicolas Cage is literally like plowing this girl on the <laughs> beach. And in the same shot is, is Birdie sitting awkwardly next to her friend, 30 feet away. So I think this is officially confirmed as the first on-screen Cage sex. In Valley Girl, he's in the bathroom with who might be his ex-girlfriend. Like We talked about that. I don't know if they ever really had sex, if they were just making out. But this is very clearly, he's going to town with her on the beach. Yeah, and he even des- starts describing it in the next scene a little bit, just in case we weren't quite sure. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Birdie's just sitting there and just like the most awkward dude in the world. Doesn't know how to talk to girls. He basically doesn't know how to talk to anybody except for Nick Cage. He's holding his and, breath again and, and he's on land. <laughs> <laughs> he just just weirds out this girl and she says, are you guys done yet? I can't spend one more minute with this weirdo. And basically grabs her, her friend and drags her away. And Nick Cage, like blue balled Nick Cage, is furious. The look he gives Birdie, uh, I actually, yeah, I wrote this down, was just like... Rage. I mean... (laughs) Rage cage. Rage cage. Total rage cage. The next scene is him on the beach explaining to Birdie basically how to pick up girls. And this, I believe, and you guys can agree or disagree, and Larson, this is a a segment that we have called Cage Advice. (laughs) It's like the the most insightful bit of dialogue that Cage delivers in a film. Uh Uh-huh. And he, it's usually about how to pick up girls. <laughs> and in this movie, he's telling Birdie how to pick up girls and why boobs are great. You have got to learn to be more sociable. I don't think that girl likes me now. You gotta make him like you. You gotta talk to him like you're interested in all that crap they go on about. You just gotta talk more. I don't care about what, as long as it's not flying in birds. What if that's what I'm really thinking about? Well, that's the first thing you got to understand in your dealings with women, Bertie. You never let them know what you're thinking. But I'm not thinking about them. Well, then just lie, for God's sakes. Don't you know your chick had great jokes on her? 
See? That's what I don't understand now. What's the big deal? They're just overgrown mammary glands. Mammary glands? Mammary glands? <laughs> no! We're talking tits here! Big tits! Round tits! Fleshy tits! Seems like a lot of dumb development tits. to me, Alan. I mean, women have to carry me around their whole lives, flopping around, getting in the way no, and everything. they don't get in the way, Bertie. They're needed. They're necessary. I seen a picture in National Geographic, Al. They're just like on a cow, but in a more stupid place. No, it's not like a cow at all. I'm telling you for your own good, Bertie, you don't know what you're missing. <laughs> I would use this monologue in an acting class if I was trying uh, to get like a spot in there or something because this is some cage that I've never heard before. <laughs> this is like golden cage, right? You know, it's like when you when you find like a new record that you just, you know, never heard before and you instantly fall in love with. <laughs> the only other speech that I feel like he's given up to this point that approaches it in terms of the acting class level was his monologue about war in the best of times. Yeah, the best of times, um, you know, thematically linked here with the draft and, and war and, and Cage, you know, and his fears about going overseas and maybe not even coming back. You know, it's interesting that he ends up making, making this movie a few years later. And he's, he's headed off to war and racing with the moon. I mean, there's a lot of war just in general in the early 80s. Were we in a war in the early 80s? I think that there was a lot of kind of Viet looking back at Vietnam in the 80s. There were a lot of points in the 80s when we thought that war with Russia was right around the corner, as we did on and off since the 50s. But in the 80s with Reagan talking shit about Russia all the time, it was a real thing. The bad guys in all the action movies were the, the Russians. So there was a lot of looking back at Vietnam. There are a lot of Vietnam movies that came out in the 80s to sort of be like, hey, remember the last time we were in a war? Remember how awesome that was? No, it wasn't. <laughs> remember how it lasted 20 years and nobody really won? Yeah. Yeah, that, that, oh, and Modine will do Full Metal Jacket in like four years from now, too. So he's yeah. doubling down on the Vietnam itself. But you mentioned something interesting, like this war lasted 20 years. I was trying to pin down when this movie takes place. They don't, they never say it, and I was having the same problem, and that's why I looked it up to see if I could sort of get a sense of it. And the Vietnam War went from 55 to 75, and this movie could really take place most of that period. It feels like a Wonder Years special episode at moments, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. it feels like that well, zone. Yeah, the flashbacks definitely have a generic 50s feel to it. Between the cars and the two Richie Valen songs they got the rights to. They play La Bamba in this movie yes. three times. Yes. It's their theme I feel, music. I feel like they just got the rights to it, and they're like, well, we paid a lot of money. We paid way more money than we should have. We're going to use it in two completely unrelated scenes, and then again over the closing credits. Yeah, I wonder if they spent all their musical budget uh, getting Peter Gabriel to do the soundtrack, because he did the soundtrack. He did the score. The score. It, Apologies. Sorry. It was one of the first times that a pop musician had ever been asked to do the score of a film. We had well, the, that's not necessarily true, because one of the movies we just saw, Stuart Copeland did the score. Uh, he right. did the score for Rumblefish. Oh, okay. I thought it was like a relatively new thing, like Mark Mugglesbaugh doing all the Wes Anderson movies. But I could be wrong. Stuart Copeland has apparently scored or been a composer or credited as a composer on 74 different things. And his first one 
was Rumblefish. So maybe he kick-started the pop musician as score composer for films. I don't know. Well, one complaint about the score, they didn't sort of integrate the melody of La Bamba into it like I sort of <laughs> was expecting, that, you know, it was a major theme and that they would play, like, sad La Bamba later or, like, you know, like uh, other <laughs> yes. other versions of La Bamba. La Bamba parentheses reprise. <laughs> Precisely. There's a scene where Nicolas Cage sits down with an army guy who's the, the we haven't really talked about Bertie's handler who's sort of this arrogant doctor who's also a major in the army he he likes reminding Cage of that the secretary this army guy is played by a character actor who you've seen play an asshole authority figure many times and he sort of interrogates Cage uh, in a way that makes you think that maybe Cage is being examined as well. Cage does not like this this line of questioning, and he gets very mad, and he gets into a confrontation with the doctor about it, and this sort of is the first time that you see the, the other theme of Cage versus authority. He's always been, like, anti-authority, and in this movie, there really are no authority figures that are not clear enemies. You know, the Cage's dad, the 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 doctor, the the junkyard guy, like it's always them against authority. Yeah, he even has a little bit in his end speech where he's like, you know, I always do what I want to do, you know, and he's like, I come over to war and I'm being told all these things I don't want to do that I got to do. So yeah, it's definitely a struggle there. And uh, and I did feel for a moment there that as the audience, you know, I think they want us to evaluate Cage a little a little deeper you know i feel like he's dealing with some heavy trauma himself you know he could use an old buddy from back home to talk to as well sure. instead of just and talking as, to a wall and as the uh, as the film goes on age keeps saying like i feel like they might end up locking me in here with you because he he's sort of coming to terms with the fact that the war really fucked him up too i think that he like he when he first visits birdie i don't think he realizes how messed up he is He's just there to support his friend, and the more time he spends with Bertie, the more time he realizes that he's got major problems, too. Yeah, absolutely. Like, at the very beginning of the movie, even when he's getting his bandages on, he's got this kind of aw shucks, naive attitude. He's cracking jokes about how he's like the invisible man, but after the first few encounters with Bertie, he realizes, like, he starts to come to terms with just how deeply he's been affected. Yeah, I, I even I remember then, like, when he's talking to the doctor for the first time, because the doctor's sort of feeling him out, like, should this be guy, should this guy, like, be talking to the guy or not? And and Cage is, like, cracking jokes about his face. He's like, yeah, I gotta it turns out, like, a steel jaw is worse than a glass jaw. I thought I was gonna be yeah, like, yeah. Jake, Jake LaMotta. You know, he's, he's very sort of, I don't know if that is that he's just dodges... He just dodges the questioning and always kind of writes it off as a sarcasm or joke or something as a response. Yeah, and you kind of like like I said before, like when he, when he has that interaction with the little girl on the train, you can see that he's like, "Holy shit, this is going to be my life now. Everything that I once knew is over." Yeah, he freaks out a couple times when he's alone, and right, and that's when he sort of starts cracking, and it's mostly around. The other people where he's trying to put up his front and act like everything's he can deal with everything. So now I think the next big moment is in the next flashback when Birdie goes to buy his first bird. Yes. 
and he just walks into like this house where there's just a bunch of birds flying around, and there's a deaf guy who can't hear the birds but likes to likes to hear the birds, and they compare the woman compares him to Beethoven, but then she starts like describing bird sex in like the weirdest and like just not graphic because she's not it's just it's just weird i certainly learned a lot about bird sex through this like birds like having gangbangs apparently and she only lets them mate like good christian humans would but yeah if birds had their way they'd just be running a train (laughs) am i allowed to say that on this podcast i guess why not sure so birdie buys the bird and brings it home and he just sort of watches the bird and then builds Da Vinci plane. We we again learn even more about birds. <laughs> How their feathers are like zippers and Yes, yes. On and on. This is like the nature channel suddenly. Yeah. I and and also I think this is around the same time where he he builds a bunk bed, but the bottom bunk is a giant bird cage. Yeah. That's insane, right? Like and if that's, you're his parents, what what yeah. do you you don't let that parents are not happy about what he's doing. They're not happy. Like I said before, you expect them to be these like horrible people, but they're not happy with it. But they're just like, ah, boys will be boys and build giant bird cages under their bed. You know, whatever. Yeah, the mom is totally like in the power position of this household, right? Like she steals the baseball, she tells the dad to yell at the son, like she's pretty much in charge. Like I definitely was expecting like some abuse, you know, from the mom on a harder level toward this boy because like you said, like you expect him to live under the stairs or like in the walls of the house or something. Yeah, she's more just sort of naggy. Like she's like, "Oh, they're they're going to give you the flu, they're going to get you sick." They're, they carry diseases, and, I, and but it's, it's she never really says to get rid of the birds. I don't think, or never really follows through. She just is just generally not happy, but just seems sort of like a harpy. Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you what. My mother is is a hell of a lot more understanding than than Birdie's mother. And if, <laughs> and if I built a giant bird cage under my bunk bed, she'd tell me uh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> She shouldn't be okay with that. (laughs) So he builds this little Da Vinci-like bird contraption, and he just goes to, he goes to, like, I don't know if it's show and tell or, like, a, you know, some kind of, like, report, but that's where he falls in love with, or more accurately, Doris falls in love with him. This works all the time, right? Like, (laughs) doing your science presentation, and then, like, the hot girl falls for the geek that... You know, no one's ever talked to before. And I'm telling you, it's to get to Nick Cage at this moment. I'm like, she's just trying to get close to his friend. So after he falls in love with Doris, or Doris falls in love with him, whether she's actually interested in him yeah. or just wants to get closer to Cage. That, she, I think thought, she's actually interested in him. I, I was just sort of joking. Those eyes she makes at him are like, <laughs> they're like anime eyes, you know? Like, I've never seen love like that before. Again, this is probably a relationship that is gone into in more detail in the book and has to be rushed in the film. That, that has to be the case. If that's not the case, then that's just sort of poor writing. But for the movie, it's fine. It's movie magic. Yeah. Then he gets a second bird because he wants to breed his birds. And he, he names the second bird after Nick Cage's character. He names him Alfonso. Hi. Hi. How you doing? Okay. Oh, you got another one. His name's Alfonso. What? Yeah. Thanks to fighting show off a lot. So you named after me. Thanks a lot. Right. It's not really his real name. 
What's his real name? I don't know. I don't speak Canary yet. And Cage's reaction to this is so perfect. <laughs> he's like fascinated by the bird and just so like he's like caught off guard that his best friend would buy a bird and name the bird after him. It's a good name, I suppose, for a bird. Uh, <laughs> it, you're, you are, I mean, it, I think, to me, it was just like, this dude, like, he's, like, socially, he's, like, a sociopath. Like, he just doesn't understand, like, bound, like, friendship boundaries to a degree. You know, like, he's naming his birds after his best friend. I don't know. To me, that's, like, a little, I'd spend less time with him if he was, you know, if I was hanging out with him at that point. But Also, I think, like, that's, that's his way, like, one of the few ways that he can sort of... He can't, like you said, he he doesn't know how to interact socially with anyone. So he's just like, I like my friend. I like my bird. I will name my bird after my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I buy that logic. If, if anything, it's like the most normal thing he's done socially. <laughs> so then, then they're, like, working out... Birdie's working out because he wants to be able to fly. Cage is working out just because he wants to get more ripped. And Birdie sort of has like a motivational speech. Cage is like on the ground outside the garage, and Birdie's on the roof doing his weird leg and arm exercises. Cage says he can't do something, or he has a negative attitude about something. And Birdie says, well, that's because you don't believe that you can fly. You know, as crazy as Birdie is, he also has like a sense of optimism that is admirable. Like, he truly thinks he's a bird, as willing to institutionalize that as people are later in the movie, but it's also sort of, you know, he he's fully committed to something, just convinced that, that if he wants something bad enough, no matter what it is, no matter how crazy it is, he can achieve it. It's the American dream. If you work hard enough, he's he's fully convinced that if he devotes all of his energy to becoming a bird... He will. And then they go to the junkyard. One thing I'll say about the junkyard scene, uh, I mean, other than the fact that he straps wings on and tries to fly, but there's a shot of a snake eating a seagull. Yeah. Whoa, that like burned itself. I mean, images of snakes eating anything are really disturbing, but like that in particular was fucked up. But Birdie goes right up to that bird, takes the snake away, and saves the bird's life. And then he's just like, hey, I just saved the bird. It was being eaten by a rattlesnake. It was two feet long. And the cage was like, yeah, all right. Okay. I don't believe you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was that was a little strange. I wondered if that wasn't just thrown in there for symbolism, you know, like a snake eating a bird and, and later on, like, all these bad things going to happen to Birdie, you know? Yeah. That, that thought crossed my mind. But a, another thought that was just, just permeating in my head was they're filming at a real dump. And yeah. that takes balls in my book. Like, I don't know yeah. if I would have been able to put up with that. Plus, to like, Birdie built like these like wings, right? He's got like, like he is the modern day Da Vinci, right? I wonder what animal Da Vinci thought he was back in the day because right. <laughs> he's building all these like contraptions to fly and he launches off the front of Nick Cage's bike and they've clearly got him. You know, the filmmakers have him, like, suspended by a crane. It, it's the most whimsical sort of flight down a hill that I've ever seen in a film before. But then they land in, in um, Garbage Lake, and I was yeah. like, oh, that is real oh. garbage water, man. Yeah. 
And like when when Cage goes running down and Cage is like, oh shit, oh shit, and he runs down. My thought was like, oh shit, he's in a pool of garbage water. Like not that he might have hurt himself, but like he might get hepatitis. And so after Birdie saves the bird from the snake, he is in his Da Vinci wings mm-hmm. and like this like flap of fabric between his legs. And he he asks Nick Cage, he says, How do I look? And Nick Cage just says, Dumb. <laughs> it's such a good best friend line. Like he just, he's not gonna like lie about it. Like he just yeah. he does look dumb. Yeah. But then as Birdie's flying, and we just sort of talked about this, but it's important to mention, this is the first time that La Bamba plays. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with what's going on. Like it's the it's the weirdest music choice for this well, scene it's sort of that like, I think you can imagine. It's sort of like the kind of reckless youth. It's it's sort of like tied to that wild, crazy fifties feeling. I think the beat just adds a nice sense of action to the <laughs> sequence. Well, yeah, that's true. and it's, it's just like light-hearted music. Yeah, and it's like the editor was like, "Well, do we use Peter Gabriel's score here or La Bamba?" Well, let's use La Bamba. In the next scene, the most horrifying thing in any of these movies that we've watched so far, they get, like, hooked up with a guy who's just, like, hunting stray dogs? He's a dog catcher. Yeah, he's a dog catcher, complete with comical, gigantic net on pole. Where where do they meet him? Like, how do they get hooked up with him? He runs the junkyard. If you see, uh, because I watched it twice, so I saw when they were (laughs) buying the car, it's the guy they bought the car from at the junkyard. He mentions he was like that fatso. He mentions him by name. He's like maybe he's like picking up dogs or something. Maybe we could like earn a couple. I think he there's a line about earning a couple extra dollars. Yeah, they need money, and they mention several times that it's a dollar a dog. They go with him, and like Mike said, they have this comically oversized net, or he has like this a net on a pole, and the two of them have a giant just it's, net. It's like a cargo and net, and they go to pick up like. This the cutest little dog in the world. A line of dogs appears and just starts barking. All I could think while watching this is that it's a nice sort of preview for the far, far superior dog chase in Raising Arizona. Yeah, nice. I also I also like the line because the the big fat dog catcher is going after the tiny cute dog while the other more imposing dogs are in the background, and he starts advancing on the tiny dog, and he's like, "I'll get this one. He's their leader." <laughs> that was a pretty legit funny line they try to catch the little dog all the dogs start chasing then there's like a little bit of a chase scene set to La Bamba again for the second time in like 10 minutes and then all of a sudden they wind up at this factory that electrocutes and skins dogs all kinds of it's like a makeshift it's, slaughterhouse it's horrifying there are horses being strung up by their back legs there are dogs with no skin that they're just like flopping around and cutting up and it comes out of nowhere. Like, it's this, like, wacky, you know, lighthearted Setsalabamba chase. And then they get to where they're going, and it's just a nightmare. Yeah, I like how they're driving along, and everything's dandy, and some guy runs into them, and he's like, you got my dog, you got my dog. And they're like, you know, pull over and give him the dog. Where are you going? And then we get to, basically, we get to dog hell, <laughs> like, ultimately. <Yeah. laughs> and it's, like, on the outskirts of uh, where they live, you know. And then in the next scene, there's almost another animal death. Birdie's cat sneaks into his room and attacks one of the birds. I don't know if it was was his original bird or if it was Alfonso. 
But then Birdie, like, resuscitates this bird and brings it back to life. That was cute. And he sort of has a flashback at the medical hospital of that cat. I thought it was sort of like a stray cat in the neighborhood, maybe. And then we flashed back to the cat breaking in, yeah, and, like, eating his bird. And, like, those those birds are going to go through some tough days uh, soon, you know. This is only the beginning for the bird. <laughs> and then when we have that flashback in the mental hospital, that's when Cage tries to make out with the nurse from Heat and the Sopranos and cops another feel and he's like oh I'm sorry I did that basically says like it's been a while and she's like oh that's okay yeah well I mean you know for better or worse probably for worse military nurses probably end up being harassed in in a lot of ways by just like traumatized lonely soldiers she rolls with it it was like super vulnerable cage too at that moment right like he was just getting through he thought to like to birdie like thought maybe he'd talk and then she comes in just to like feed him and he's like what the hell are you doing here and she's like he's my job it's part of my (laughs) shift you know and he's like well he's part of my goddamn life and like storms out of the place yeah yeah it's fun watching him be fed He's cute when he's fed. Will you stop taunting him? Look, he's reacting to me. He's giving me that pissed off look. You're pissed, aren't you? Will you stop it? It isn't working. How do you know? It's obvious, isn't it? You fucked it up. Why'd you have to come in here? Because I work here. He's part of my job. Yeah? Well, he's part of my goddamn life. Oh, another explosion, you know? He's losing it. Speaking of losing it, I, I feel like this, in terms of the flashback, is when... Birdie is really starting to lose touch with reality. Like, he's spending a lot of time naked in the birdcage. Uh, <laughs> and, and and you hear this voiceover that's like, the boundary between me and bird is starting to fade. And, like, I feel myself becoming a bird. He, uh, the birds have eggs, right? And the, he's like, all I want to do is watch the birds grow. And, li- like, he's like, I had two, now I have four. It's like, I'm, you know, all I did was put a little food in there and it's like he's he's got like this god complex now That's yeah like he's he's on the he's on the edge of the deep end i thought it was pretty cool that they show the baby bird being born yeah that was cool it's our first on-screen cage club birth and it's not <laughs> even a human right when he's starting to make his descent into bird madness is when the prom happens. Prom is in all of these movies. There are school dances in all of Nick Cage's early movies. He's, we, we kind of discussed a little bit, like, he is playing a teenager, so, like, he is teenaged, so he's in a lot of teenage movies, and prom is, you know, it's in a lot of teenage movies. It's a big event in prom, in uh, teen life. What I thought was a nice little touch, a little wink, was that the song the band was playing was Rockin' Robin? I was hoping for La Bamba again, but... <laughs> I mean, I was hoping for La Bamba too, but, like, it just... It's funny that there's there's probably not that many songs with a bird in the title, and they just happen to be playing <laughs> one with a bird in the title? Wait, I, well, I mean, I don't have that in my notes. I actually have that the song they're playing when they cut to the prom is You Don't Own Me. Well, there's that. So they, they have that, and it's like the awkward dance... And then they cut to the band actually playing, oh, yeah. as opposed to them spinning a record. And the band's playing Rock and Robin. Well, just like just like in any in any uh, prom movie scene, there's a slow dance and an upbeat dance. There's always got to be the Johnny Be Good to the Earth Angel. Yes, it's a beautiful reference. <laughs> while they're doing the slow dance, Nick Cage. I mean, okay. So <laughs> while every movie, while every teen movie may have a fast dance and a slow dance. Not every teen movie has Nick Cage miming 
hey, just grab a feel. <laughs> he's like hold, he's holding his hand up and just like squeezing the air, again trying with, to teach Birdie what to do. Again with the boobs. He loves boobs. It's a dance move to him, you know? Yeah. It's like spin, dip, feel. But instead of copying a feel, Birdie sees his dad, who's a janitor at the school, and just goes off to talk to him. Like, there's nothing else going on. His dad is like, ah, these kids can't handle their liquor, you know, I'm working <laughs> yeah. prom, I didn't want to bug you. And, and Bertie's like, it's like, what are you talking about? It's like, to him, it's the coolest thing in the world that his dad works at the, at the school. It's, it's even cooler that his dad gives him, like, a little bit of money. He's like, bring her somewhere after prom. Basically, just paying for his sex adventure, whatever Bertie wants to do. And he's probably just going to use that money to buy another fucking bird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's going to expand the coop. And so after prom, instead of... Well, first they, first just, they try to do, like, the teenage, you know, the, the what teenagers are supposed to do. They like they go and they drive to make out Yeah, that's, point. that's what I mean, yeah. And she's driving him, because I guess Birdie never learned how to drive. Well, I still think he's underage, because they took that joyride to Atlantic City and ended up getting, like, arrested for it, right? And that the yeah. their parents had to come pick him up, and so... I just took it as he's underage, she's driving. So she drives him, and they pull over, and she says, Hey, you've been so nice to me, now you can have whatever you want. And she just takes off her dress, and he just sort of, like, tries to channel his inner cage, picks up her boobs like a scientist would? Yeah. And then she freaks out. They were great boobs. I mean, they were great boobs. Yeah. really, really Prime boobs. Not to sound sexist or objectifying or anything, but no, we we talked on previous episodes that like in a lot of these '80s movies, there's just like real casual nudity. Like everybody just sort of gets topless. Yeah, and all these girls have like great '80s boobs. It almost feels <laughs> mandated by the studio. You know, like is this movie R? Okay, you know, got to get a rack in there somewhere. Yeah, Siskel and Ebert aren't going to give two thumbs up to just any movie. <laughs> Better have some boobs in it. Did they give two thumbs up to yes. Birdie? On, on the front of the DVD case, there's a four-star rating from somewhere I've never heard of. And then in the middle of the case, it says, two thumbs up, Siskel and Ebert. Most of Siskel and Ebert's reviews are on YouTube somewhere, so I'll have to, I'll have to look for that. There's like the one shot of boobs in this, but there is so much Matthew Modine butt, like both in the flashbacks yeah. and in the present. Yeah. He's naked all the time. Yeah, he well, hates I, pants. He just, like a bird, he just will not have them. <laughs> like a bird. Yes, birds hate pants. That's what birds I... hate pants. When I, when I think of birds, the first thing that comes to mind is, God, they hate <laughs> pants. I mean, Donald but Duck I, won't even wear a pair of pants. <laughs> <laughs> but I have in my notes here, because he comes home from prom, and he's... Like, I think that the prom was made him realize that he has nothing in common with humans. He just gets naked and crawls in the cage. I wrote Apocalypse Now with Birds. That is, that is a good description. It's pretty much the opening of Apocalypse Now. Like, he's laying on his back, naked, staring into space. There's a voiceover, and he's just, like, talking about how reality means nothing to him and Bird, being a bird is all he needs. Then comes the sky cam shot where he's a bird. It's like a dream, and apparently, according to IMDb, this was the first use of the sky cam in a feature film. Mm-hmm. It's a camera held by wires, supported by four cranes, and controlled by a computer, and it just captures Birdie's dream sequence of him flying down the street, 
and basically just flying through his neighborhood and enjoying life the way that he wants to enjoy it. He doesn't want to be a person. He wants to be above it all. It's very cool. It's an awesome shot, and it just swoops around pretty much every location from the flashbacks. It goes down the street. It flies past the junkyard. It goes to the ball field where you first see Cage playing baseball. It's really, like, technically and artistically, like, a really great sequence. But when they were playing baseball, I think it's a really, really great character introduction. Cage hits a home run, and, like, it goes up in a tree and goes into Birdie's parents' yard, and she grabs it. And then way up in the tree, Birdie's just sitting up there. He's perched. It's great. Like, it's... I almost didn't see him, but they just... he That's just, like, what he does. He just... Like in the dream, he just spends his time up in the trees and looks down over them from the place he feels most comfortable. Just to go back to prom night for a moment, if we okay. could, when he sort of, you know... If only we could all just go back to prom night just for one moment. <laughs> just anyway. for that pivotal moment. But, like, I totally agree that, like, this is him. He's, like, transforming now. He is Birdman. The voiceover mentions, like, there is... the no- Like, dream and waking life is... Um, is the same to him, right? And, like, I want to die and be reborn as a bird. So I wasn't sure if he was, like, actually, you know, I wouldn't put it past this movie. Was he, like, warging? Was he, like, going <laughs> Was he like going into warging. the bird's mind? Yeah, was he becoming a warg from Game of Thrones? And, like, literally, like, did he achieve some kind of, like, zen peace within himself when he realized he's a bird man? I don't know. These are the thoughts running through my head. This is why we do the podcast. When, when he gets the second bird and Nick Cage asks what his name is, he says it's Alfonso. He says, what? And he says, well, for now it's Alfonso. And he's like, what do you mean for now? He's like, well, I don't know, or I don't speak bird yet. He's so dead set on this goal that not only is he going to be a bird and be able to fly, but he's going to learn how to speak and communicate with these birds and truly become the bird man. Yeah, and in the uh, mental hospital, Cage is even like, um, all right, you know, you don't want to talk to me. We'll just, we'll talk like birds, you know, or we'll sit here and talk like birds. You know, it's, it's thematic. After the birdie bird's eye view bird dream that's the night of prom yeah nick cage comes over the next morning he comes home from prom and has this epiphany and nick cage comes over the next morning be like hey how was it and he's like oh i can't even describe it he's like oh yeah i know right (laughs) he's like no i flew i want to hear about last night i'm not sure i can explain it to you huh (laughs) oh i knew it i knew she'd do it tell me what happened not with her with me last night i flew I really know what it feels like to fly. You flew? How you flew? And he's like, you flew? How you flew? And then he just sort of describes the dream to him, and Nick Cage thinks he's going to have this great sexcapade story to tell, but instead it's just about how he flew. Yeah, and Cage shows up with his uh, tux all mussed up and, like, lipstick on the collar. Like, that was such a great touch. You know he was out all night just getting lucky. Of course he was. He's he's Nicholas Cage in a a school where everybody's in love with him. In case you didn't pick up on it, (laughs) you got the lipstick on the collar. I don't think I saw that. That's that's definitely a second viewing, nice little pickup touch. And then it's war. We go right into Vietnam. Deep in the shit. It's devastating. It's horrifying. There's nothing good about it. It, Like we we were talking about earlier, they're not there for very much, but it's intense and all horrible things. You know what really kind of hit me about cages sequence in particular like it's so purposefully confusing you know like it's so what's going on what happened and then right when you think you know what's happening like he gets shelled in the face you know i really got the sense of what like they were going for with that 
you know, situation of panic and, you know, trying to confusion and what was, what he didn't even really know what happened to him until after it happened. And there are just great shots of the camera panning over battlefields of dead people where nothing's moving and there's just Cage or somebody just screaming. In between Cage's war flashback and Birdie's war flashback, the baseballs arrive and Cage thinks that the baseballs... For some reason throughout the film, he felt that the key to snapping Birdie out of it would be if Birdie saw all the baseballs that his mom had kept hidden, the baseballs sorted from the other side of the fence. And actually, he he sleeps on the floor outside the doctor's office because he's convinced that he's just as crazy as Birdie at this point. And he's like, I'm just going to stay here forever because I'm just as crazy as Birdie. And then mm-hmm. the baseballs show up, and he's like, this is it. This is the key to everything. And he opens the suitcase, baseballs go everywhere, and nothing happens. There's that, and there's also the flashback of Birdie's beloved little yellow bird flying into the window. And yeah, the bird, escape, the bird escapes somehow. He knows the bird's going to come back because that's what the whole movie's been about, that birds fly away, but they come back in the end. And he's, like, panicking to get his window open... And he can't get his window open in time, and the bird just flies into the window and kills himself. Yeah, that was probably the last thing that happened before he got drafted. He was, like, at his lowest point. He he was really psyched that he had become a bird. Then we go from there right into Birdie's Vietnam flashback, which is right. even more traumatizing than Cage. After Birdie's flashback... Well, just one thing about his flashback. I think the reason it's so traumatic is because he fell out of the sky, you know, like, he, yeah. was in a, he was in a helicopter, and he was flying, and then um, the, the guy next to him was, like, bleeding to death, and the chopper's going down, and, and he's sort of not even responding, and then it, he's the only survivor of the crash, and, like, it's just charred bodies everywhere, and then that's him, like, losing his mind and, like, screaming toward the heavens and then they like napalm the jungle that he's next to on top of that so he's double disoriented after the experience they make a point to show the reactions of jungle birds like he's he's landed amongst all these jungle birds do it think like sam Yeah, there's a toucan, and you're like, okay, well, maybe, like, Disney-style, the birds will come and, like, nurse him back to health. But, like, no, they all get fucking napalm. <laughs> Nothing but bad things over there. And that's and, and that scene is where, as I think Joey referenced it before, that, that shot where it pans over just these charred bodies laying in, in, the, in the jungle, which is yeah, very... Yeah, one odd. of them is just screaming in, in immense pain. At this point in my notes, I reverted... <laughs> To just visceral reactions. I wrote, yeah. jungle birds, with an exclamation point. Then, <laughs> I, then I wrote, holy shit, mm-hmm. uh, when the napalm came. Right. And then I wrote, aww. And that was, awe was when, from there, it cuts back to a really, really affecting scene with Cage and Birdie, where Cage is just like you know what, at this point, I want to be where you are. Like, you had the right idea to just cut yourself away from everything because humanity is fucked. I should just be a bird, too. And it's it's really like a two-minute speech of him just cradling Birdie in his arms 
and he's given up all hope. He doesn't think Bertie's ever going to talk, and he he's basically resigned himself to a life in this army hospital, sort of near his best friend, but also as far away from his best friend as he could possibly be. I can't go out there. I couldn't make it. They got the best of us, Bertie. We're both totally screwed up. I mean, we haven't had anything to do with making our own lives. Fuck! I was always so damn sure about being myself and how nobody was going to make me do anything I didn't want. And now here I am. Finish you off with a discharge or put you on a casualty list. It doesn't matter how special you are or were. I feel like one of those dogs nobody wanted, remember? You know, when that shell went off in my face, I could smell burning flesh. And it was crazy. The smell was so sweet, so familiar. And then I realized that it was my own skin that was frying. <laughs> and I couldn't even touch the pain. I don't even know what I look like anymore, Bertie. I don't know if it's me under these bandages or what some army meat cutter thinks is me. Jesus Christ, I don't want a patched up instant pity excuse for a face. I just want it to be Al under here. Not some sewn together freak mask. But shit! What's so great about their fucking world anyway? We'll just stay here and keep the hell out of it. I don't have to go get these bandages off. You see, I figured out what you're doing, Bertie. You're right. We should just hide out and not talk with anybody. And every so often, go crazy and run up the wall and spit and throw shit at them like the lady across the hall. Yeah, yeah that's what we can do. That's what we can do. Sometimes you're so full of shit. Was that you? All of a sudden, Bertie talks. Yeah. (laughs) And 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 at that point I was like I mean I knew he was gonna talk at some point. He he actually his first thing is like, Oh, you're full of shit. Like (laughs) shut the fuck (laughs) up, you're full of shit. He's so casual about it. There are there are some like really legitimately funny moments in this movie and the funniest is the last moment which we'll get to soon but yes but, but that is one of those moments where like cage gives this whole big speech about like oh you had it right you you checked out a reality because reality sucks and and like i'm i'm i want to be right there with you and he's just like shut the fuck up you're full <laughs> it worked so well for me because you know i wasn't 
expecting that level of vulnerability and sincerity from Cage at this point yeah. in his career even, you know, I was really sort of floored by his performance going like they're treating this material with like all due respect, you know, like and they're yeah. pulling it off and, and it makes that Modine moment like really worth it. It would have been less of a good moment if Cage's monologue hadn't sounded as genuine as it did. Right. Like Cage's, Cage's whole speech was really heartfelt and like you really got drawn into it and then for Modine to be like, you're full of shit was was great. Like that. Yeah, it was a combination of like the writing and just the way he delivered it and everything about the scene, the way it was shot, it just it's exactly what it needs to be to set up that moment and it just pays off perfectly. Yeah. And then he calls the doctor in. And then Birdie doesn't talk. Yeah. And at that point I thought maybe maybe Cage had gone Yep crazy too and that only he was hearing birdie talk i still think that could be a possibility i, I think that's the depressing ending yeah. that i don't want to think about but i think that's it is a possibility but so the doctor comes in and birdie doesn't talk nick cage starts freaking out assaulted. and the doctor runs out to go get orderlies to basically subdue cage and just sort of handle the situation and he's like why wouldn't you talk and birdie says Oh, because I had nothing to say to him. What do you mean you had nothing to say to him? At this point, I wrote, oh, no, in, in my <laughs> notes, because Cage was just fucking everything up. There was no way that they were both going to get out of this without being, like, shock treatmented into the Stone Age. See, that's part of what made me lean toward the, this isn't actually happening, but it's kind of the idealized ending for the movie, so they go with it. Kind of, yeah. I don't know. A part of me feels like there's a real ending and then there's this ending. Like the last two movies that we saw, both Racing with the Moon and The Cotton Club, there's like endings that sort of feel like they don't match tonally. And especially with The Cotton Club, we were talking about how the end scene at the train station, you think, might not have actually happened. Yeah, um, it just felt like a curtain call to me. It's real weird. And so the orderlies come in to take care of Cage... And again, just sort of like, you know, we just talked about like with Racing with the Moon, the same way that they escaped from those four sailors at the bar, he like flips an orderly over his shoulder, he then knocks another one, kicks one in the balls, and then races out of the room with Birdie like on his arm. Well, this this could be a reference to Cage's character being a wrestling uh, star, although a lot of the moves he uses in this scene are not technical. <laughs> such as ball kick. There has to be a payoff for him being a wrestler aside from that one scene yeah. where he meets Birdie. They want to escape, and of course, instead of going down to the ground, yeah. they go up. I knew I knew watching them run up the stairs. First, My first thought was, why are you going up? Like, didn't you see Scream? My second thought was, of course, there's going to be a bird-related moment. Yeah, it's Birdie. <laughs> And they go up to the roof in, I think, maybe the funniest moment in, like, any movie I've seen in a long time. <laughs> Birdie, like, it. he walks to the edge of the building, and Nick Cage is trying to barricade the door so that the orderlies and the doctors and everybody can't come up to the roof. And he turns to see Birdie just, like, preparing the jump, and he just says, No! And Birdie jumps, and Cage runs over, and then you see that like he just jumped onto a roof that was like eight feet lower. Yeah. And he just looks up and just says, "What?" And then the movie ends. And right there, and Lebama plays. 
But it's I mean, the such beauty, a great ending. The beauty of that scene is that you're expecting the stereotypical ending to a movie like this, where the character who thinks he's a bird stands on the edge of the roof and thinks he's going to fly away, and he jumps and dies. And, and, and there's a slow-motion shot of him throwing his head back and putting his arms out and making this graceful leap into the ether, and then that's it. He dies. You think from the tone of the movie that that's exactly what's going to happen, and it ends up being a hilarious... The last shot is him just on an adjacent roof a few feet lower, and being like, what? It felt like Birdman. Like, I would love, like, if, like, I loved Birdman, and I, I truly do think that when, this is a huge spoiler for Birdman, but I mean, it's basically the same end as Birdie. Um, when Birdman, when it's Michael kind Keaton of a remake. jumps. It's kind of, Birdman's sort of a remake of this, <laughs> let's just be honest. He jumps out the window, and then Emma Stone looks down, and then looks up and smiles. I think it would have been really funny, like, I was expecting, because I've seen Birdman before I saw Birdie, for Nick Cage like to look down and not react and then look up and smile, but the ending is just so much better than that. Like it's it's so good. Yeah, I think it's the most abrupt ending to any movie I've seen. It wraps up like on a dime. I mean, it reminds me of old kung fu movies that end as soon as the bad guy is stabbed, and it's just like the end credits done. We're out of here. <laughs> you know, shut the door. You know, uh, the only other thing I sort of thought of was the end of They Live. You know, <laughs> where like all of a sudden, spoilers for They Live. Like at the very last minute, you know, the aliens are sort of revealed, and it just ends on sort of a "What's wrong, baby?" It's like a genuine comedy moment that you don't expect from a movie like this. Uh, not not only do you not expect it from a movie like this, but you don't expect it to be the climactic ending moment. <laughs> Something that's just laugh out loud funny, like genuinely laugh out loud funny, not just like ironically funny. It's like a testament to how well this movie is made, right? Because these guys, you know, and we've sort of encountered this with Cage before, like him and his co-stars feel like, good friends on screen probably because they get along off screen really well but like him and and matt Dillon, you know him and um sean penn like everybody you know i felt like they felt like real friends and i think this movie the ending works so well because we're really invested in this relationship like it or not right you know that's absolutely true and you know i just kept thinking especially because it ended so abruptly. But I I just kept thinking of what happens now. The two options are either they both get discharged and share an apartment somewhere, and the other one is them laying in beds next to each other after having shock treatments and lobotomies, which is probably more likely. Yeah, that's not the ending I want. The ending I want oh. is that they just escape, they fly off, or they just do whatever. Yeah. They, they've lived a horrible life and just let them... Yeah, I mean, it, it, like, that's the thing about this movie is that you you really... It's, it's one of those movies where you really genuinely care about these characters, and you really want what... You really want them both to end up in a happy situation. And I would love to see them sharing an apartment in San Diego and having wacky misadventures. Opening up a pet shop. Yeah, yeah. And, like, Nick Cage has to teach him how to pick up chicks. Nick Cage with his half-melted face. I was a little kind of upset we didn't get to see under the bandages a little bit. But I guess, again, that's 
that's sort of part of the point, right? Is it's just sort of meant to deal with him as is. That's Birdie, a movie that I've never heard of that I don't think, I mean, I can't imagine many people have heard of. No. It won the grand prize of the jury at Cannes in 85. It was nominated for the Palm, Palm d'Or. How do you pronounce that, Palm d'Or? Sounds right to me. I don't, I yeah, don't really it was, do French that well. It was nominated for the Palm d'Or, Palm d'Or in, in 85. The Palm d'Or. Uh, Pop to Palm d'Or. The Palm d'Or. There's so many, like, weird... And we were talking about this, you know, last time we were looking ahead. There's just so many, like, weird caged gems that, like, nobody knows about. This is a great example of a movie that's entertaining and weird and delightful and also with a great performance from cage i mean great performances all around really i was gonna say about matthew modine's character i hate to reference the phrase from tropic thunder that you never go full retard i don't even like using that word but you play a character that has like a, a mental issue developmental issue it's easy to sort of go over the top, sort of like p- playing a drunk character. Matthew Modine just knocks it out of the park, like whether he's in the flashbacks, he's traumatized birdie, like acting like a naked bird in the mental hospital. Like he plays it in a way that you, you buy it and, and, and you really feel for him. And it's fantastic. And it really makes me wonder how he ended up playing opposite a CIA-trained monkey in Funky Monks. (laughs) One of the first Matthew Modine movies I've ever seen, and still probably (laughs) one of my favorites. Any final thoughts about Birdie before we say goodbye? I just think that it was... uh, Well, this is definitely a a Vietnam film I've never heard of before, as I stated toward the opening, and, uh, and not your typical Vietnam film either, you know. I'd like that it deals more with the after effects, like the shell shock and, you know, all the uh, disfigurement and, and all that, because, you know, those people had to live in society that way. And this is just an interesting look at uh, that side of a Vietnam film. I thought it was, it was a great Cage performance. It was a slightly better Matthew Modine performance. But it, it was a movie that I started off thinking was weird, and I ended up thinking was great. And I really am surprised that this movie has not really stood the test of time, because it's, it's, it's a pretty powerful movie, as weird as it is. And as wonderful and great as it is. Which makes it a perfect addition to the Cage repertoire. I think that'll just about do it for the Birdie episode. I think this is going to be our longest episode yet. It's a, it's a movie with a lot to talk about. Oh my god, yeah. And it's our benchmark episode too, because it's our first guest. 1984, I mean, you've got, what is the next movie on your list? This is the third and final film for Cage in 84. He had a very busy year. He was in Racing with the Moon, he was in The Cotton Club, and he was in Birdie. This movie came out, apparently, four days before Christmas, hmm. which seems like a very interesting time for like a heavy movie to come out. I think yeah, that's award yeah. season, right? Yeah, I guess it was an end of the year, so they could be dumped into the next year's Oscars. And again, the no, next... no Oscar nominations at all? No Oscar nominations. This is the cusp of Cage blowing up to becoming Cage. And we, we we mentioned last time, or Mike mentioned last time, The Cotton Club is his last supporting role for a while. From here on out, he's pretty much star leading man. 
the, the man that people come to see. The next movie that we have, to answer your question from earlier, is The Boy in Blue, and then we have Peggy Sue Got Married. Oh, uh, yes. But interestingly enough, if this is interesting, he made no movies in 1985. In 81, he did The Best of Times. In 82, he did Fast Times. 83 was Valley Girl and Rumblefish. 84 was Racing with the Moon, The Cotton Club, and Birdie. And then he did nothing in 85. Well, he was probably it, entertaining offers. He spent the year just mulling over. Like, he had the world at his feet in 1985. 1985 is the only year in Cage's career that he did not release a film. Really? He said a film a year? He said a like, film he's like every Woody year. Allen. But yeah, so every single year from 81 to 84 and 86 to 2014. Well, I wonder if he if it's just like he could have been working that year, but nothing got released until the year after. Like he put out three in 84. He probably didn't film all three in 84. He put out two in 86. I mean, both of those, or at least one of those was probably being worked on in 85. But according to IMDb, according to the years that things came out, Nothing in 85. All I know is I just saw a screenshot today of a movie he made last year where he's a medieval knight. And I think he's like with Ryan Philippe or something. Hayden Christensen. Hayden Christensen. Hayden Christensen. <laughs> a movie worse. called Outcast. And, they are uh, indeed medieval warriors of some kind, I believe. I don't uh, know too much about that yet. Uh, we'll get to it in about six months. That's all I know. I, yes, yes. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And, and it has been an honor to be part of well, the Cage Club, if just for one night. Well, thank you very much. And Christian Larson, much like James Bond, will return. <laughs> we, we will not tell you what movie he's coming back for, but we have him on the schedule for at least one more. Yes. And so I hope you enjoyed him because we're not getting rid of him anytime soon. Oh, that's sweet. But yeah, so I hope you enjoyed this episode of Cage Club. This was episode 7, Birdie. Stay tuned this week for The Boy in Blue and Peggy Sue Got Married. And check out our reviews on cageclub.me. You can follow me on Twitter at SoulPop. You can follow Mike on Twitter at the Mikester, And you can follow Larson on Twitter at CappinGoodTimes, C-A-P-N good times and we'll see you next time on cage club bye everybody what